Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. You're listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The use of lead dates back well, all the way to ancient Rome. And the dangers of lead exposure are well known today, have been known for some time. Uh, those of you with older homes know or should know to be aware of old paint may contain lead since uh, lead was not banned in paint until the late 1970s. Also dangers in some drinking water, we've heard in our news recently, contaminated soil contaminated with lead can also be a problem. And we know lead especially harmful to children, uh, babies with their developing brains. This hour, a specific focus, we're going to explore several perspectives, mostly on the hazards of lead levels in food, specifically deer meat, venison. Uh, joining us for the entire hour is Samantha Horton. Samantha is a fellow for NPR's Midwest Newsroom. Welcome to our program. Thank you for being with us, Samantha. Thanks for having me. I wanted to have you talk a little bit about the bigger picture collaboration that the Missouri Independent and NPR's Midwest Newsroom are um, collaborating on over the next few months into current lead hazards. Um, Before we drill down into this specific article that uh, you and Jared Strong teamed up on, tell us more, uh, set the scene. What is this series covering, broadly speaking? Yeah, so our project specifically is focused on blood lead levels in children, and we've seen a high, a high number of children in the Midwest with elevated blood lead levels. And as you know, what is covered a bit from my other reporters on the team uh, is that children, you know, this can have a, a, a long-term, lifelong effect on children, whether it's behavioral issues or IQ levels. There's things of those nature that even at low concentrations of lead exposure could still cause harm. So we're looking at many things. I know we had a, a, a big story come out a, while, a little while back on just kind of the overall viewpoint of just how much lead is in our society still to this day. Mm-hmm. And so we're now, we've started going through kind of some more detailed things. So I recently looked at more like our food system specifically. Yeah, okay, let's let's dig into that. And, and just to make our listeners aware, NPR's Midwest Newsroom includes not only Iowa, uh, but also Kansas, uh, Missouri, and Nebraska. Did I catch all the states in the, that you sort of cover in your team? I believe so, yeah. There's okay. four states. So yeah, if you got all four, we're <laughs> Okay, Let, let's focus on venison. There's a fascinating article. I was certainly not aware of it. Um, uh, w- lay out the problem here. What, what have you discovered? What have you investigated? Yeah, I mean, to be fully honest, I was not aware of this until I just came across the Iowa Sierra Club actually a while back had like, pushed to look at legislation in Iowa to try to um, examine like x-ray uh, donated uh, venison. So I, this is all new to me, but I mean, this whole thing is, you know, what I've seen is just a primer of it all. I mean, HUSH, the HUSH program, which stands for Help Us Stop Hunger, and it's a program when hunters are able to donate deer. They've hunted during the season. It's been around for quite some time now. So it's a program that I've heard, you know, a lot of people say it helps pantries meet the need of protein in communities uh, when 
protein sometimes is a harder thing for food pantries to get access to. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a thing that's been seen as needed. And we can just kind of talk more about that in a moment. But I mean, just to run through kind of how this all happens. Uh, and this is the part that gets, that's where there's interesting parts to this. I mean, summary is a deer killed in the field, you know, then they, the hunters bring it to a processor and the processor will then go through and examine the deer. And they do, from what I talked to, like the processor I talked to, he does his best. It's a, meat, it's a local meat locker and they do their best and they try to, you know, look at where the trauma, which is like something that would be trauma area would be like the wound channel where the bullet passed through. They try to cut as much as they can around it, and then they take it all, all the deer meat, and then grind it up into these two-pound tubes that they fill up. And they send those to food pantries, and pantries will distribute that until they run out. And, I mean, it depends on each year on how much is donated. But, you know, some pantries, I know one I talked to is already, you know, they go through it pretty quickly. Another one, you know, it's maybe a little bit slower. They might still have some. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a varying, you know, I don't, it's, it's very hard to necessarily say like, oh, it's only available for two months because it could be more or less. Right. And, and Samantha, um, we'll be listening to various viewpoints uh, from actually people featured in your longer article um, uh, from the Midwest newsroom on this topic. Um, so th- this is very valuable to give us a brief sort of overview of the different areas. So these meat processors, they, they bring in a, uh, they are brought, um, they receive a, a deer carcass in this case. And, you know, for those of us who are not hunters, um, this lead shot going into the deer, uh, some is, it's very clear where it is, and, and, but s- some, some parts can be very small, that's, that's correct. Yes. So, I mean, I went through, I've talked to so many researchers, but I know there's like research out of Minnesota where they shot, I believe, sheep, if I'm recalling correctly, sheep carcasses, just to get an idea of how much the bullets would fragment. Because that's what we're really, that's kind of the mm-hmm. key part is, is the fragmentation of these, the lead shot. And they found like the, from that wound channel, so that's where the idea of where the shot would enter, they were finding fragments up to 18 inches away. And we're talking about like the size to give people like a visual perspective, like a grain of sand, like very tiny, like things that you would not be able to, if you were prepping the meat, you would not necessarily see that piece of lead in there. It's not something that you would bite down on and, 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 and like tell that you're like chewing on a piece of metal or something that was, it's that they're like tiny particles. Right. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of people are just not aware of the hazards of lead shot. I mean, this is a number of years ago, but I had an elected official here, an Iowa lawmaker, who I think we were talking about um, hunting birds. And uh, he said, you know, in, in preparing the meal, it wasn't uh, unusual for him to find a piece of lead shot on his plate. Um, and mm-hmm. it didn't seem to bother him. I think he compared it to pumpkin, uh, not pumpkin, but uh, uh, watermelon seeds, which was distra- okay. which was distressing to hear, um, <laughs> because this is certainly this is certainly something you want to avoid uh, in small or large quantities for sure. You can die of lead poisoning, but also, and we don't have a medical expert on our on on our on our show today. But uh, this was interesting in your article that we. Uh, you know, lead poisoning it can can kill you, but in low um, low doses, as you referred to it, it can have some developmental impact on especially younger people. That's correct, and I think that's really what the heart of this story was. More, there's the big things there, are, and they're very important too. But I think as we continue the conversation about lead poisoning, or not even just like lead exposure in this, you know, instance, because it's not considered poisoning, because the blood level might not hit that point. Mm -hmm. But 
it still can have problematic effect, like problematic, you know, consequences for folks and children. And I think that's something that made it interesting. I mean, I'll give like a just perspective if it's okay about like the numbers we're talking about, because I think that might sure. help a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I know like Iowa, they tested um, 10 packets back in 2008 uh, when originally North Dakota had flagged this as an issue. Um, and so they tested two and two of them came back and they showed lead concentrations and they were low. Uh, they were about 0. 0.5, 0. 0.7 parts per million. Um, and so just to help give it that number just may not at first mean anything, uh, but I did um, look and like looking at the European Union's tolerance for lead level in some of their meats would be at 0.1 part per million. So those are already over what like the European Union's tolerance level is. I did check with the U.S. because we do have tolerance levels in lead in bottled water and fruit juice. So I did ask the Food and Drug Administration and the United States Department of Agriculture, their Food and Safety Inspection Service, about if we had a meat uh, tolerance level, you know, for like lead, tolerance for lead and meat uh, level and got the response that there is no established federal regulatory levels for lead and meat, poultry or egg products. It's more one of those things of they just kind of determine it when needed. Uh, so that was really hard right away just to kind of be like, is it significant? Is it not what would qualify? You know, so mm-hmm. we, I, that's why I pulled the European Union's number. But it is, you know, it's it's low, and I think the big thing that I talked when I talked to like experts too is the frequency of how much, how often are you consuming, you know, game meat? Then that's I think that was what came into it. How often are you consuming venison? Because the more often you consume it, the higher, you know, the higher chances then that you would uh, um, increase your exposure. Right, and a little later in the hour, we'll talk with a hunter. Uh, and an ecologist, because, of course, our listeners are already, uh, many have already arrived, and why do we have to use lead shot? There are other types of uh, shot for hunting, and and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the program. But uh, it's interesting, you you brought out the fact that in this um, quartet of states, Nebraska, Missouri, Kansas, and Iowa, Iowa's the only state in the Midwest news group that has a special labeling on venison. Talk about that. Yeah, so they're also the only one that I found that's actually even t- done a test of any kind to even see about the, this as a, as a you know, concern. Uh, but they did. They actually have a, on the packaging, on the, so like one side will just be like, you know, it's donated, it's not for sale. Um, but on the other side, they have on print saying like lead fragments may be found in processed venison, Children under six years and pregnant women are at the greatest risk from lead. And then, but then in bold, it has Iowa has not found cases of lead poisoning from lead in venison. So they have it on there, which is an interesting part of the conversation that I've had with like foods, a food safety expert was the concern of like, why does that even putting it on there almost acknowledges this risk and mm-hmm. that concern that there is that. So I think that that plays into a bit of, you know, that question of like, Okay, it does create awareness, but then that question then of is an like is an awareness that you know should there be something being done and not have yeah. to have that as a question. So there's there's a lot of food justice that starts playing into this as well, and we can touch on that here uh, with like what some other states or, or at least one other state first um, example is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other state did you have in mind? So I had Minnesota, um, and that's actually one of the big reasons why I, like kept pursuing the story was. Uh, talking with the Department of Ag there, they actually x-ray all their uh, shot harvested uh, deer. So they won't, they won't x-ray the, the archery harvested. It's just 
uh, shot harvested. Uh, So they'll go through and x-ray it and they discard any of the packaging, any packages they find that have lead. Uh, So uh, talking with them the past, you know, few years, they've found about 10% each year they're getting rid of, like they have to get rid of because of seeing like lead fragments in. So I think that they reaffirm that as a reason of like, why they keep doing it because it's obviously a continual they're seeing a number at the same time the conversation i had too is very much about you know we as consumers have an expectation of our food system and so the question becomes then if you know why should someone have to lower that standard or any of that to you know because it's a donated product right i think that that's where they took the standard and that's why they try to hold themselves as close to what they would hold a meat packaging facility or something yes and you bring this out very clearly in your article of course donated meat uh, and we'll talk to a food pantry uh, 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 serving low-income people here too why should the standard there be uh, any lower so uh, another thrust of your article your and, and Jared Strong's is is that this is uh, meat that is not up to the standard that people would find in a grocery store, right? I mean, yeah, I, that's, I think that's the concern. I mean, I think the biggest issue is there's not testing. There's just a lack of testing or awareness necessarily. So mm-hmm. even talking with Iowa about would there ever be, I would DNR about a follow-up test because even in 2008 when they tested 10 packages, I know some of the comments like when I talked to experts was that's not a statistically significant study even and it's for, in the first place to even understand the issue in the state. You know, maybe it's, you know, like, I don't know, like it could be much worse. It could be worse. It could be better. Yeah. We don't, you know, it's hard to know. But I mean, I think that's the big thing is there's no even a, I think that's the big thing is there's not even awareness of like how much of an issue is it? Yeah. Where, and, you know, where are we at? And I think that's the thing that I think is concerning there too, is just the fact that people don't like, there's not this trying to even understand how much, you know, like mm-hmm. that where it is. And, and Iowa officials respond how, when they see studies with um, some lead in this, uh, what is the, uh, the response uh, you and Jared would get? So when we chatted with the DNR, at least I was on that, uh, that interview with Jared and I were both on that one. we, they pointed to the, the 10 packages studied and the both were low. And they really pointed to the health department as being just saying, you know, to, to just kind of dismissing it. And so, I mean, I think that's been the big thing of, even we asked if there'd be a follow-up test. I think that was a big thing of relying on uh, Iowa's uh, uh, department of like health to check, you know, to give them like a thing of like, Hey, this is an issue. We should, you know, or you need to do a follow-up test or we need to check something. On the same time, like when I go back to that labeling where it says Iowa has not found cases of lead poisoning from lead and venison, uh, something I started going through then was just wondering, well, is it even something being asked or even being like looked at by like health, like in the health department information for folks, you know, who might have their child need to be screened for, have their blood level screened. Mm-hmm. And I went through things and like, DNR might have information about it, but the Iowa um, Department of Public Health did not have, at least from where everywhere I looked and online and everything, did not have anything. And the survey I pulled, which if you live in a certain zip code, there's reasons why you might automatically just have your blood level screened. Um, but uh, there's another option of having this like questionnaire survey where you fill out as like a getting idea of like something else you like do you live in a you know house you know that was built before 1978 where the whole idea of lead you know lead and paint Mm -hmm. um 
there's nothing mentioned about game meat consumption, which is the hard thing too, because it's one of the things where people who are going to the food pantry to shop there and get their, you know, their needs don't necessarily, maybe don't necessarily know even the process that goes into the donated venison because they don't hunt. Maybe they might not hunt. That's, that's kind of the whole thing of this disconnect in information. Um, Just, there was a lot of things that when I talked to people, there, you know, things that were pointed to, there could be improvement. Okay. Uh, Samantha Horton will be with us the entire hour, fellow for NPR's Midwest Newsroom, talking in this case about uh, potential um, risks of, of lead from lead shot in uh, donated venison. Uh, let's talk to, uh, f- finish up uh, uh, with Kim uh, Guadardo. She is a f- the food reservoir director at the Hawkeye Area Community Action Program, HACAP. Hi, Kim. Hello. You've been listening along with us. We want to get a, for those who don't know uh, about HACAP, to introduce us quickly to your work. We only have about f- five minutes to talk here, but quickly uh, bring us up to speed on what HACAP does and, and where is your intersection with, um, uh, with, our, with our topic today. Sure. So HACAP is a Hawkeye Area Community Action Program. We're a community action program situated in East Central Iowa serving uh, the community action as a whole serves nine counties. Um, including Cedar Rapids and Dubuque area. Our food bank uh, covers seven counties, so it's a little bit different area. But um, in our food bank, we are the Feeding America Food Bank for um, our part of Iowa. And we have about, I would say on average, about 14,000 pounds of the hush of venison meat donated each year. So we certainly have a, a hand in this. And and I've been uh, following this story, which is, is it's very interesting, just kind of learning about some of these concerns. Yeah, and and you've been the director there for several years. So uh, this investigative reporting here is is news to you. Does it bring concerns? Uh, concerns uh, certainly the, the people, uh, just like anybody, the people who come to you, low income people, need protein and and uh, meat, donated meat, and. We've reported it on the Hush program here on our program a, a number of times. It, it really works wonderful for, for hunters and also f- for, um, for uh, you know, HACAP and other food pantries that, that need this protein, right? Right. I mean, the protein is huge. We, we've had such a decrease in the amount of food available to us through the USDA, a decrease in retail donations as we're seeing an increase in need um, due to the pandemic and, and inflation and all of those things wrapped together. So we're definitely seeing in that increased need. And so certainly the, any uh, proteins that we can get our hands on is, is something that we want to be able to provide to families in our service area. Right. Um, I do have to say, I, I agree with what Samantha has said about the really understanding more about what, is it a real concern? And, you know, as, as we know, there's no level of lead that's acceptable for children and pregnant women. So um, is this something that, um, you know, that, that is happening in, in this meet? And, um, you know, without further information about that, it's difficult to really know. It's kind of you know, just accepting a certain level of risk, I guess I would say. Right. And all the packages of venison, as I understand, also in your food pantries would be have that warning label on there uh, that Samantha described. You've seen that label? Yes. Yeah. And and so did that give you pause or um, is it just become sort of routine part of the packaging that, you know, it, you, you can just say, oh, OK, that's just just part of the game when you when you have a. Uh, live or a game that, that that's brought in deer in this case 
Right. I think it, I think both of those things um, certainly, uh, you know, having that warning on there does help you say, wait, why is this here? Um, but at the same time, it does, you know, become part of the packaging that you don't really think much about. And so I, I think it's important that we, you know, continue to raise the awareness of a potential issue, um, but at the same time, understanding what the, what the real concern is um, related to the amount of risk that there really is involved. Yeah. Given the questions and a number of them unanswered questions here that's been raised by this uh, reporting, uh, Kim, as the food reservoir director there at HACAP, does this um, put it on your radar as causing you to take some action? What will you be doing in the, in the future because of this reporting? I think, you know, we can continue to get the information out to, to our partner agencies, the local pantries, that um, they're distributing the meat directly to families and just help them understand what, um, you know, without knowing the specifics of it, knowing that there, there is a potential risk. I mean, I think we have a potential risk in, in any, anything that we do. So understanding and learning more about, uh, you know, what's going on helps all of us become more educated. Um, but passing along that information to people who maybe aren't aware of it um, really helps uh, raise that awareness overall. And then, of course, you know, we would love to continue to educate um, hunters about, um, you know, using other forms of ammunition. Or I know um, one hunter that I spoke with you know, spoke of um, making sure that they, uh, like, where the deer is shot so that there isn't um, fragments in the actual meat portion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so looking at the, the accuracy of that, to just educate everybody all around to understand um, the big picture. Yeah. And before we go, in in the final 30 seconds or so, tell us, Kim, for you at HACAP and the seven several counties that you cover there, uh, what it, what is the, uh, the trends you're seeing among the food insecure here in Iowa? Has it been increasing over the last few years? We've seen about a 25% increase since April 1st uh, when the uh, SNAP benefits changed. Um, reverting back to pre-pandemic levels. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we, like I mentioned, we have had a decrease in the amount of food available to us. So overall, there's just such a greater need to be able to have food to feed our neighbors. And that's just important for everyone to understand the, the, the great need that's out there and how each of us can make a difference um, by helping at the local pantry or food bank level. For sure, an important message. Kim Guadardo, Food Reservoir Director at the Hawkeye Area Community Action Program, HACAP. Samantha Horton is still with us. She'll be with us in the second half hour as we continue our conversation about potential risks of, of lead uh, in donated uh, venison. But we'll also be joined by the executive director of the Alliance for Advanced Sanitation that's based, a nonprofit based in Chicago. Also talk with a hunter and ecologist uh, taking stock of possible lead contamination in donated meat. Our conversation continues in just a moment. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. You've been listening to an encore edition of River to River. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. You're listening to an encore edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. 
We're back with more of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, talking about the risk of lead contamination in food, specifically in donated venison at uh, food pantries for low-income individuals. The Missouri Independent and NPR's Midwest Newsroom collaborating over the next few months to look into current ha- uh, lead hazards, especially as it pertains to uh, children. Samantha Horton joins us. She's a fellow for NPR's Midwest Newsroom. And if you were with us in the first half hour, you were to outline uh, the scope of what they're looking at in, in terms of lead, um, you know, getting into venison. Uh, later in the hour, we'll hear from a hunter and an ecologist. I'll just uh, share here, Samantha, you're still with us, uh, uh, an email from Larry in El Cater. Uh, he was listening to the conversation and asks, how much is the health of our kids worth? Do we know how much it costs Minnesota to x-ray packages of venison? And Larry adds, I'm a deer hunter who uses copper slugs. Uh, Samantha, that one question, I'm not sure if your reporting um, covered uh, the cost of, of those x-rays you said were taking place in, in Minnesota to detect even these minute sort of grains of sand-sized pieces of, of lead. Yeah, it actually did, because I think that was an important part of this to understand, you know, how costly would inspecting it be. I know Minnesota says it costs them about seven to $10,000 uh, to inspect. And that includes transportation of all the, you know, all the meat that's been processed at the like lockers throughout the state to the facility and to the, the, where they x-ray it all. And then they, then they distribute it back out. Mm-hmm. So that includes like the travel as well as the x-ray from what I uh, was explained. So, I mean, it's one of the things like seven to $10,000. I mean, that's still a decent amount, but they find it within the budget of the program and they have found it something that they just at least when I talked to the one individual uh, that's a part of it just felt really strongly about that's something that needs to be done uh, right. as a just a responsibility of the, of the of the program. Right and I have to believe with an x-ray because lead is a heavy metal it shows up very well uh, on an x-ray <laughs> in in the meat uh, there as well. Uh, let's uh, add to our conversation Angela Anandapa, uh, she is executive director of the Alliance for Advanced Sanitation. That's a nonprofit in Chicago. Angela, welcome to our program. Hello, it's nice to be here. Nice to have you. Uh, we're not, most of us, not acquainted with the Alliance for Advanced Sanitation. Tell us a bit about the scope of your nonprofit. Certainly. Um, so the Alliance for Advanced Sanitation started actually in Nebraska which is part of one of the states that we're discussing about right now. Um, And we started in the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Uh, Right now, it's a nonprofit organization based in Chicago, and we are focusing on improving the the, the level of hygiene in general uh, of the food system. What that means in, in, in application is sanitation programs for food companies as well as any other company that's involved in the food system in manufacturing, um, uh, developing equipment for the industry, uh, testing services, um, so any company that's involved in making food. Um, We work on training, we provide research services, and we provide consulting services uh, for basically for risk management. So we work to generally improve the food system. Mm-hmm. And, and the, your your services cover a, a number of states. Correct. We we actually work globally. We have clients who are out of this country as well. Okay. So uh, you've been listening to our discussion here. Talk a little bit about your take on this problem, the way different states 
are, are dealing with it. Uh, uh, I, I guess, uh, uh, what can you tell us about your understanding of the, um, you know, the contamination, the, the low, even if they're low doses of lead consumed with this meat, how much of a, a hazard is that? What is your understanding here? Because you, you do deal with it in, in, your natu- in your work as well, don't you? Absolutely. Um, so we look at uh, hazards, and, and that's the right term to use. We look at lead as a hazard. And lead as a hazard um, has many ways in which it appears all through our, in nature, because lead occurs in nature. Um, what we look at in our, um, you know, in, in our food system is we look for ways to minimize or eliminate these risks so they don't cause harm, they don't cause uh, illness, and they don't cause death in human beings. So those are kind of the criteria we look at. Um, so when we do consider that uh, lead can come up um, in our water system, which we do want to control, we have found it in certain uh, types of foods. Uh, and whenever we do find a, a potential source for that, we want to identify, we want to quantify that risk, and we want to either put in measures to eliminate that or be able to, to have some specification that we can say it must be at this limit. That's where limits for water levels of lead and things like that come up. Um, so when it comes to this specific issue, um, one of the challenges is that, you know, when hunters hunt for deer, um, we don't really have uh, checks and balances in place as we would in food manufacturing. So we're relying on those hunters to really do what's necessary. And then, of course, we're trying to make sure that we're also you know, able to feed people who are in the greatest need um, so that that meat that is, um, that's obtained can get there in the safest manner possible. Mm-hmm. So and, here there are several issues at play. Yeah, and, and becoming acquainted with this issue on this program, it seems to me, and Angela, uh, tell us your thoughts on this. It seems, you know, um, the way to improve this, we've got to determine what are acceptable levels, um, uh, especially because it impacts the development of, of, of younger brains, especially. Um, uh, but we've got to figure out how to get this out of the carcasses, the uh, the deer carcasses in this case, effectively, um, and then going uh, up the up the chain to, to find out if hunters can change their behavior. Is that where you see uh, remedies uh, to reduce this problem, which is sort of undetermined? Yeah, it, I mean, there are several uh, areas in which you can sort of apply uh, an improvement or apply a remedy. Um, One, I think Minnesota is doing a good job in being able to x-ray. And I think having that program and perhaps learning from that in Minnesota, perhaps teaching other states in what they're learning, um, perhaps expanding that program um, seems to me kind of uh, the the first step, right? Um, In addition, I think we have opportunities from what we are learning through you know, these, these um, activities, what Samantha's uncovered here in particular, is that we really don't have a whole lot of data in the United States about the prevalence of this issue um, or how frequently we have minute quantities of lead that are undetectable to x-rays. And when that occurs, um, if it does occur for how long that's there, because that is the source of lead exposure that's going to be uh, present in that meat, whether or not you x-ray. Um, we do know that some of these studies are done in other parts of the world when the, in the U.S. we haven't done some of these. So funding for these kinds of things 
is necessary. So funding for doing these kinds of studies um, would help tremendously in helping our states understand the, the true risks and be able to implement uh, remedies. Angela, you say you, your organization works worldwide. How do we fit in here in the Midwest or in the U.S. in terms of um, detecting, having systems in place to detect lead levels in these, uh, these types of products? You know, I think this is still not an area which, even in other parts of the world, we have a lot of remedies in place. What we do know is that, you know, published research tells us that in certain other parts of the world, particularly in Europe, you do have a higher prevalence of cancers in hunters. So, um, and these are hunters who are using lead, of course, to hunt and in those populations. So hunting families, um, if they consume that meat, they are at risk. That's not something we're able to get a lot of data on unless you're actually capturing that data. In the U.S., if we were to have, have some more data on that, it would help us understand not just donated meat, but the risks to hunters themselves and the risks within of using bullets that have, um, you know, just lead slugs at, at all. Yeah. Is that, Angela, do you think when it starts with the type of shot that a hunter uses, would you put that as sort of low-hanging fruit where we can improve the situation here rather than later detect it um, and then remove it and make it safe? Why not just not use it in the first place? That seems logical, doesn't it? It it does. And, uh, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but I think others who will be able to comment on that, my knowledge is that, you know, lead slugs are used because they are cheap, they have the right a kind of way in which it would disperse and create the uh, the, the desired um, death of the animal that you're looking for um, in a hunting situation, yeah. right? That is that is that is the reason you would use those slugs. So what what would it mean to use a different slug? I think that that question remains to be answered. Um, and if that is the the way you would do that, I think you know both the hunters. Uh, and those who are receiving donated meat would all be benefic- benefited by that. The yes. right answer for that or the right type of um, shot to be used, I think, is still to be determined. Right. And, and in just a moment, we're going to talk with a hunter and an ecologist, hopefully get some answers to those questions. Angela, before we say goodbye to you, any um, as, uh, aspects of this that didn't get mentioned from your expertise? Um, I think labeling is one thing that um, should be considered here. Um, the fact that we have some labeling in Iowa is better than none. However, I think uh, informing the consumer, informing the user um, is something that, you know, more states should do. Um, and this is seems to be done on a very local level. Um, and if that is a, a recommendation, I would say that we can provide. Um, certainly, I would say it's, it's a must do. Okay. Thank you very much for your time and your expertise, Angela Anandapa, Executive Director of the Alliance for Advanced Sanitation, a nonprofit in Chicago. Chicago. Thank, Thank you, Angela. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Uh, Samantha Horton still with us. Samantha, some interesting uh, aspects there that she was one of the, the sources that uh, you and Jared interviewed here, wasn't she? Yeah, and I'll, I'll add with at least with the... Uh, conversation about you know requiring use of non-lead ammunition i know there was a petition that was filed in 2013 
uh, to the Iowa DNR about requiring uh, deer in this program to be shot, you know, shot harvested to be killed with non-lead ammunition, and that was turned down um, since they, they sourced back to the health department, having found no evidence of that linking human consumption of venison to lead poisoning. Mm-hmm. So um, there, I know that has been a movement, uh, but I know we'll talk to Hunter here in a moment, but uh, that's something that I know um, uh-huh. has been put out there before. Okay, uh, let's let's go to our phones before we go to our uh, add our final guest. Bill is with us. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the program. Where are you joining us from? Oh, hi, Ben. Uh, I'm joining you from Sac City, and I just wanted to make the comment that I'm a hunter and landowner, and I insist on non-toxic ammunition, uh, and I have signage to that effect in all my properties. But I, I have invited guests, and I still re- receive resistance from guest hunters and education may help some, but in general hunters really can't be relied upon for good behavior. Some will, but a lot won't. Um, it should be legislated, but with the gun lobby in this state, it's unlikely that that will happen. So continue public education is our only uh, course of in- imperfect action. Uh, and we just need to keep hammering that home. Secondly, any game that's not retrieved that's been shot with lead will probably die as a result of lead poisoning. It's a real problem with a lot of our raptors, such as eagles. And so it's not only humans that we should be concerned about, but our uh, wildlife friends out there that consume this non-consumed lead shot game. Thank you. Bill in Sac City, thank you so much uh, for calling in. Uh, Let's also add to our conversation, uh, Given Harper, welcome. You are a hunter and ecologist at Illinois Wesleyan University, according to, to my information. Welcome to the program. Yes, thanks for having me on the program. Well, we've our trajectory of our program has really led to what hunters or what hunting practices can be changed to um, uh, to to benefit uh, those who consume the game that is uh, killed. Uh, what are your thoughts on on the harm that lead contamination is posing in our venison? Well, I'll sort of start out with with uh, my journey. I've I've deer hunted for quite a number of years. And about oh, 15 years ago, I, I was reading papers about uh, the harmful effects of lead for human health and then on wildlife health. So um, students and colleagues here at Illinois Westland and I conducted a study and we x-rayed ground venison packets from shotgun harvested deer. And in Illinois, Um, Most of the hunters use shotguns with slugs. Um, We found 48% of the packets from 10 deer contain metal fragments. We didn't find any metal fragments in three archery harvested deer. We had those, um, we isolated some of the metal fragments and had them chemically analyzed, and they all actually were lead. Um, If we calculated that ingesting these particles that we found, these lead particles, um, a person would uh, ingest from six to 52 parts per million uh, of lead in a single serving. Um, We also conducted a survey of meat processing plants in Illinois, and we found that 60% of those plants Um, mix venison from more than one deer. 
So even if you're a hunter that uses non-lead ammunition, you could still potentially um, get packets that contain lead fragments. Because because it's in the machinery that grinds the venison already. Yes. I see. Yes. It, um, I, the meat processing uh, um, people indicated that it would be too difficult to try to you know, completely clean the venison from one deer before processing the next one. Right. And, and according to what you've researched here, you know, those lead levels, most of us are not acquainted with, you know, acceptable lead levels or, or, or not. You just named some. Help us understand how, how much of a hazard those lead levels are. Well, so the, the CDC indicates that there's no safe blood level uh, in children that's been identified. And then the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences and the World Health Organization both indicate that there's no blood lead level that is safe. So uh, this can certainly, uh, as, as discussed earlier, this can impact um, children, um, but actually there's studies that have shown that it can also impact adults. Um, lead is associated with cardiovascular issues, nervous um, issues, kidney functions, and fertility problems. Yeah. So it, it, it affects both adults and children. You, um, you are a hunter. Most of those listening, I will just say, are, are not hunters. So give us an idea, and we just heard from Bill in Sac City, uh, you know, he demands on his land, his property, that uh, hunters uh, use non-lead shot. Uh, what is the, what is the, the, the pro- how many alternatives are there out there to hunters like yourself? Um, and why do hunters cling to lead shot? So th- there are a lot of, of, of non-lead alternatives. I use copper slugs, but you can buy copper alloy, bismuth, tungsten, steel, brass, and so forth. There there are a lot of different um, alternatives. Um, I think these actually, in terms of of me using copper, they are highly, the slugs I use are highly accurate, and they have the same um, killing power as lead slugs. Um, I think in part, some some hunters may may um, feel that you know, you're you're trying to take away my rights, and that's really not the issue at all. It's basically if you want to safeguard both human health and wildlife health, the scavengers that feed on the unrecovered deer in the organ piles, um, you really need to switch to to non-lead ammunition. It is, it is available, it is a more, um, copper at least, is more expensive, but the cost of ammunition is often the least uh, expensive part of deer hunting. Yeah, and so, and this also goes to anglers out there. I mean, we have the, the same sort of problem, I think, with uh, lead sinkers and so forth, getting lead just out of our, our wildlife, uh, wild activities uh, there. So well, in your conversations with other hunters and, and noticing reticence there, uh, what is the best solution? Just 
trying to uh, raise awareness? Uh, do you would see any realistic chance that there would be laws, even if state by state laws, to to um, uh, eventually outlaw uh, lead shot? Well, I, I would urge the Department of Natural Resources, the state departments, to to really um, push an education program to get hunters to switch to, to non-lead ammunition. I mean, the, the problem would not exist, the, the lead issue would not exist if, if, if all hunters basically use non-lead ammunition. Um, California is, I believe, the only state that has enacted a ban on lead ammunition. Okay. I um, in in I also want to point out uh, we're finishing up the coming to the end of our hour. A quick word given uh, before we go is all we have time for. Sorry. Sure. No. So so you're you're not only benefiting human health but wildlife health. There was a study this year that indicated 46 to 47 percent of bald and golden eagles throughout North America suffer chronic lead exposure. And a lot of that is from eating non-recovered deer. Okay, certainly sounds like there's a lot of work we can do to improve the situation. Given Harper, hunter and ecologist at Illinois Wesleyan University, uh, thank you for your expertise. You're welcome. I want to thank, uh, a big thanks to Samantha Horton, a fellow for NPR's Midwest Newsroom, who's uh, part of this, uh, uncovering what is, I have to believe, not known by many of our listeners. Samantha, thank you for joining us uh, this hour and for your tremendous reporting. Thanks so much for having me. River to River Today, produced by Zachary Oren-Smith, with help from Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to an encore edition of River to River. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com.